Mayela Marinovich, your host. Welcome back to the Learn With Less podcast, a family enrichment program for parents and caregivers, educators, and infants and toddlers of all developmental levels. In this podcast series, we get together for some music, some play, and conversation about early development and early parenthood. The mission of Learn With Less is to provide confidence to new families that you can support and connect with your baby or toddler without having to buy a single toy. If you are an educator or therapist supporting new families and interested in finding new ways to support your income by leading caregiver and child classes that every infant and toddler family can access, I would love to share a free on-demand training with you. Just pop in your email and I will send the link directly to your inbox. Just head over to learnwithless.com slash training today. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's nice to see you here today. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's nice to see you here. We can start by saying hello to the people who are with us. Hello to Ayalet, hello to the singers, hello, 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 hello to the babies, hello to the toddlers, hello, hello, hello. Since I don't know your name, I will help you sing the song and you can fill it in. Ready? Hello to your child's name, hello to your name, hello, 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 everybody, hello, everybody, hello, hello, hello. Today we've got a very special guest on Learn With Less, Joanne Cazot, a pediatric speech-language pathologist, private practice owner, and creator behind the Instagram feed, The Speech Pathologist. Let's welcome her to the show. Hello to Joanne, hello to Joanne, hello, 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 hello to all our old friends, hello to all our new friends, hello, 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 one last time, hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here today, hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here. Welcome to the Learn With Less podcast. Today, I'm joined by Joanne Cazot. Joanne is a multilingual New Jersey licensed pediatric speech language pathologist and early interventionist who specializes in identifying and therapeutically supporting young children with speech language disorders. She is also the owner of Cose Speech Therapy, a pediatric private practice based in Bergen County, New Jersey. In her earliest days as an undergraduate student, Joanne knew that her life's work was to help children and their families improve their communication skills. Joanne believes in making speech therapy fun and functional. She knows that optimal learning occurs during positive experiences and that rapport is a critical component of a successful therapeutic relationship. Joanne sees all children as having strengths to build on to improve their weaknesses and to help them achieve their speech and language goals. She is passionate about empowering families, especially those from the diaspora, to support their children in achieving their full communicative potential through education, training, and counseling. Joanne, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today on Learn With Less. Thank you, Isla. Thank you for letting me come on. I'm so Um, happy to have you. Well, I just wanted to say, first of all, I looked on your website and I love how your tagline is communication is 
communication for everyone, actually, yeah. not just communication is for everyone, but what you provide is communication for everyone. And exactly. I, I just love that. And I'll, I'll want you to sort of get into, you know, more about that in general. But first, yeah. you know, I read your bio, but I'd love for you to just tell us more about your own professional background, how you mm -hmm. got into the work that you're doing today. Yeah. And thank you. I'm glad that you like that tagline. It took me so long to come up with something that I was comfortable with and that represented <laughs> what my practice was doing and my practice values. So I guess I'll jump into a little bit about myself. Yeah. So I actually got into speech language pathology in like the roundabout, most confusing way. And we talked about that like a little bit before. So I actually was very interested in being a pediatrician, which I feel like there are so many similarities with what we do, especially if you're working with pediatric populations with having that interest to work with younger populations. So I really just had it written in my mind that I was going to become a pediatrician. I was looking at pre-med programs at all of my colleges, but an experience that actually put me on the path to engaging with the speech language pathologist was when I moved to the U.S., I was evaluated by the district. And when I was evaluated, I was evaluated in English and I spoke no English at that time. The only word that I knew was rabbit. And that was from watching Bugs Bunny. And oh my God. Like sometimes <laughs> it would play that. And then I knew what a rabbit was and I could say it perfectly, but that's the only thing I knew. So I remember the person who was doing the assessment was just flipping through pages and giving me directions. And I had no idea what they were saying throughout the entire assessment. And I was crying and I was in distress. And a few months later, we had this big old meeting downtown. It was like in the department of ed. And my mom was there and they were just kind of like chatting away. I had no clue what was going on. And my mom was just very furious. And I still had no clue what they were talking about until we got home. And my mom said that they were trying to diagnose me with a language disorder and that she had advocated for me and said, well, she doesn't speak English and she was assessed in English. So of course she's not going to meet any of your criteria. And so my mom was my first advocate and actually speech language pathologists were like enemy number one in my mind yeah. because I was like, this person did a very terrible thing to me and they tried to take advantage of me. And so when I went into undergrad, I was still pre-med and I was a bio major until one day I took a foundations to human communication course and I loved it. Still not realizing that this is a thing that I hated so much way back in the day. And then I took another course in that same department. The department was called something else. It was like communication, something, something, something. So it didn't click to me that like this was the speech and hearing science center and that I was taking some other courses. And then when I realized what was happening, I was like, oh, wow, okay. I really do like this. And I feel like, you know, if the thing that happened to me, if it happened to me and I had my advocate, you know, my mom, then this could potentially happen to other children. And so that's when I kind of took up an interest and I said, well, maybe I could be the person that makes a difference, especially given the demographic of our field, that yes. maybe what happened to me actually happens a lot more often than I thought. And maybe I could be the person that makes a difference in another child's life. So that's how I ended up pursuing, I guess, the academic portion of speech language pathology. And so I did my undergrad at GW. I have Haitian parents, so it was not an option, even though I was halfway through my four years, it was not an option to do five or six years of undergrad. And so I was taking 18 plus credits oh my God. from junior to senior year just to try to finish my speech and hearing degree since I did up so late. And I was also a public health minor. So I was just like taking credits, taking credits. And by the time I was done, I was exhausted. And then I did my graduate studies at Howard University. I specialized. We had like a medical speech language pathology track. And that's what I did. And then I did my CF in Baltimore at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. And I learned so, so, so much there. And I worked with 
populations, children who had complex medical diagnoses, who were medically fragile, and who had other cognitive disorders. And then I moved back home because I was homesick. I really miss New Jersey. And so I moved back home and I did some private practice work. And I really realized that the work that I was doing because of the demands that were placed on us, I really felt like I wasn't doing my best clinically. And so I dove into my own private practice, which has been working out great. And I have ah. time to do things like this with you. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 Okay. First of all, I would love it if we could just specifically name what you what you touched upon about the demographics of our field, number one, mm-hmm. which I am assuming, yeah. and I'm pretty sure I'm right, that you're talking about the fact that our field is, what I don't have the actual statistics in front of me, but I believe it's 92, yes, 92% yes. white women. So I did not bring you on to talk specifically about this topic, nor do I think that you need to be the person to talk all about this topic, yeah, but I'd love to it, talk. Though. I mean, yeah. I'm happy to tell us a little bit more more if you can explain from your own experiences, some of the things that you feel like were at play, knowing what you know now as a grown woman Mm -hmm. with an education in a field now yourself as one of the 8% humans who holds a marginalized identity within this field, what do you feel like were some of the factors that contributed to the identification of you as a child having a language disorder versus the fact that you probably we should have just been evaluated in a language other than another language yeah so I feel like there are multiple things at play and I will give credit to some things and kind of dismiss other things so I know that discussing bias and race is not something that occurs at the graduate level and definitely not at the undergraduate level so I think that clinicians aren't prepared to be able to make sound decisions when they are presented with a child that doesn't speak English or maybe speaks multiple languages and they're not really sure how to do differential diagnosis. I think that's something that's not discussed. I think there are also clear biases that are not kind of brought to the forefront at the academic level. Like these are the biases that you might hold as a white woman. Like these are the biases that you might hold like with these different identities and just being able to have open discussion about it. Because when I was at Howard, we talked about it a lot and I'm not necessarily sure that it's just because it's a historically black college. I just think that our educators were invested enough in the work that we did and invested enough in our clients to be able to say, look, when you go out into the field, you're going to encounter different people. These are the biases that you should take into account. And then let's figure out clinically what you're going to do to make sure that you're recognizing these biases. I think that conversation just doesn't happen. Um, And I can tell you just being at GW. So I had both experiences, right? I went to PWI and then I also went to a predominantly black university, a historically Mm -hmm. black university. And some of the things that I experienced from people who had PhDs, some of the things that they were telling us, like one, I was clearly offended by, and two, wasn't true. And three, like there was just no discussion beyond what was said. No one had kind of the ability to challenge anything. And I felt like in my PWI experience, I was the challenging Black student. I was the only, I was the only speech and hearing science major who was Black and female, Black and female, double, like, bam, bam, double whammy. whammy. (laughs) All right, double whammy. And my entire 
like class. And so a lot of things that were said to me, I would challenge them. Like I had one professor, very esteemed in our field, who said that Jamaicans and Jamaican natives do not speak English. And that like threw me all the way back. And I said, well, if they don't speak English, <laughs> what do they speak? And she said, well, they speak Patois. And I was like, okay, but like if you were handing out, you know, like a survey to like all of Jamaica and you said, circle all the languages that you speak, it would circle English because Patois is based off English and yeah. they were colonized by Britain. And yeah. then they would say, and I also speak Patois. And so that became a whole conversation <laughs> oh of God. contention. And I was like labeled as the difficult student in that class. And I had that experience throughout my PWI journey. And it's alarming to me that someone, you know, who holds such a, an advanced degree, if that person can make that statement, I can only imagine what's happening everywhere else in the field. So I think it's like, one, these conversations aren't had, but like, yeah. two, these are just these people's biases. Like, these are these clinicians' biases and assumptions and throw in a little hint of racism in there and you got a good old pop. So, yep. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's <laughs> a lot of things. Look at how- It's a lot, how, like, a lot of things. It's a lot of things. <laughs> Yeah. And we will also be sure to link to a ton of great resources because we brought up some pretty important discussion topic. And if you are someone who's listening and would like some more resources on this topic, we'll be linking to things like that in the show notes. So Joanne and I will have a conversation about what those might be. <laughs> Obviously, this topic is ingrained into all of the other things that we're supposed to supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to talk about today. But I want to, you know, revert back and ask you about your own therapeutic approach, because you mentioned about how, number one, you worked in a private practice, you wanted a little bit more flexibility, you wanted more, you know, control over your own life and lifestyle. So I want to hear a little bit about specifically your therapeutic approach and how that has shifted, if it has shifted from when you worked in a private of practice to working more in early intervention for yourself in your own practice. Yeah, for sure. So when I worked in private practice, I think one thing that we kind of had to recognize is the private practices, especially when insurance is involved, there is a pressure to have more clients and to be more productive. And so I kind of got stuck in that cycle of seeing upwards of like 45 to 50 clients in a week. And it felt like a rotating door or kind of a process. And so when you are seeing that volume of clients and, you know, there's a restricted amount of time, it's not like you can say, Hey, you know, I'm feeling really tired. Can we like delay our session by 45 minutes? Because you're scheduled back to back a lot of times. For me, the therapy became a lot of grabbing toys and doing the session that way. It became a lot of doing a lot of articulation drill activities, a lot of things that I felt like in that moment, immediately, it took care of their therapeutic needs, but I wasn't sure that I was being my best clinician. And the way that I could describe it the best is that I was seeing the clients, but not treating the clients. And saying it out loud is so cringy because as a therapist, I would never want to assess myself as not treating a client, but it felt that way to me. Like clients were just coming in and out and I was seeing them and I was doing activities with them, but I really felt like I really wasn't 
treating them and doing my best therapy. So I didn't feel good about myself and the kind of therapist that I knew that I could be in that space. And so everything was also so toy heavy. Like I had my big old bag and everything was in a Ziploc bag and it was just like toys, 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 toys. Whereas I really wasn't taking time to talk to the families about what to do at home besides like, this is your homework. I want you to do these drills. Let's do like initial T's for homework. But I really wasn't, the carryover wasn't happening. And parents would tell me like, I just don't have the time. I just don't have this. And I didn't have the tools to tell them any better because I was just like, oh, sit down and play with your kid or like sit down and do these drills. Whereas when I transitioned into more early intervention and working using the home-based model, especially given the climate that we're in with COVID, bringing in the toys, one was just the hassle because then you have to wipe everything down and make sure that you're not transmitting and transferring things for myself and for my other clients. But also too, because in early intervention now, the expectation is that you're not bringing toys in. So I was so used to clinging onto toys and holding onto toys. And that was like my, you know, my saving grace, like, oh, we can do pop the pig. Thank goodness. Like I'm going to pull one of these out. Whereas when early intervention is like, nope, we don't expect you to be bringing in toys. And they kind of have like people monitoring. I felt like I was freaking out for like the first week. I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, what do you mean? I can't bring toys because sometimes you go into the home and the families don't have toys. So I think that what that's done for me is it's taught me how to be a lot more creative. It's taught me how to use what families have. And it's also taught me how to bring families into the activity so that maybe whatever mom is doing, we can get involved with and we can still target skills, but it's not necessarily that we're playing with a specific toy. So that's really helped me a lot. And then I see the carryover happen a lot more because if we're making a sandwich with mom or maybe if we're helping her with the laundry or with dad, whoa, that was not inclusive at all. Um, <laughs> if I am playing, did you see, I just caught myself. I was like, oh gosh, we oh, two think, years yeah. of training with AC Goldberg and I still yeah. am just not getting it right. <laughs> so if we're playing with parents or if we're completing a routine with parents and if we're doing maybe a laundry routine with parents, since this is something that they're going to do anyways, then it takes off that pressure from them that makes them feel like I have to sit down for five minutes or for 15 minutes and play a game. Whereas now a lot of my families are carrying it over because it's already part of their routine. So it's been beneficial to me and it's also been beneficial to the parents because they see the value of just taking one activity that they're doing and embedding a skill into it. So I feel like that's opened up a whole new world for me. And now I have a cart trunk full of stuff and they're all organized very neatly, but I don't touch them. I might take in a book every now and then, but now it's it's almost like I really don't have a use for toys, whatever we can get inside and we can just do whatever and we can still find a way to target things. And I'm not anti-toy by any means. I love toys. I think they're great, but I think the mindset shifts for me, especially especially with early intervention being like, nope, you can't take your bag in there has been, you have got to figure out a different way. And the different way has been working for me. And that was a really long winded answer. But you know what? It resonates as you might imagine very yeah. much with this person. As yeah. in me. Oh, yes. Yes. oh yes. Sorry. I'm, I'm raising my hand for all the people who can't. Who can't see us who are listening yeah. to the podcast. Yes. And I love just number one that yes, it's not about being anti-toy. It's mm-hmm. about utilizing what families already have. If they have toys, I I bring them in. If the child is playing with a favorite toy, of course that's gonna come into the play. But one of my clients right now is really into spatulas and his family has several different colored 
spatulas as in like the, 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 like, what's the word not scooping, but like, oh my gosh, what's the word for like when you're curved. Yeah. It's like the curved one for like the edge of the bowl, not like getting something up and flipping the wrong person. I don't cook cook a day in my life. But there's, they're both called spatula, right? One, yeah. one kind of spatula is like the flipping kind for uh-huh. pancakes. And one kind is like for scooping the icing or whatever off the edge of a bowl and like getting it in. Right. Anyway, regardless, <laughs> spatulas, great toy. Um, <laughs> but like, that's what we're going to play with. Right. So mm-hmm. for instance, for me, like I find if I am going to bring something into a session, then it's usually something that like, I think the family might already have, but if mm-hmm. I bring it, it's like, Oh, a salad. You mean you, we can use a salad spinner like in play. Oh, well the speech therapist brought it. So it must be okay. Right. So yeah. that's like sometimes a strategy that I use to like get families more buy-in to like actually utilize the things that they have at home as play objects. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just a fun, just a fun little side. Yeah, no, that's great. Sounds cool. <laughs> I would love for you to just like outrightly name what to you do you feel like is the difference between seeing clients versus treating clients? Cause that was a really interesting note that you said. Yeah. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about that if you can. Yeah. So I feel like, and I think I mentioned it before because of the volume of people that were coming in, they were just coming in and I was doing the session. So I knew that that was taken care of, but just having the time and time is so precious. And I'm figuring that out now, like time is a luxury and we don't talk that about enough, but when you have so many clients coming in and there's just, there's enough time to, to grab something or think of a quick activity. Whereas I feel like now, because I do have the luxury of time, I can sit down and like, think about some creative things to do with my kids and mm-hmm. think about some creative ways to target their skills and then give them carryover activity that is actually really functional to them and really invest a lot more time into my clients than I was before. Because another thing that we have to think about is the documentation when you're dealing with insurance you kind of have to be like on your P's and Q's. Whereas I feel like I'm not spending, you know, that much time on my documentation. I'm not spending all of my time talking to reps and trying to figure out about a claim or this or that. So I feel like I have more time to invest into my clients. And that looks like physical time sometimes too. Like sometimes the session is going really well and I don't want to stop and I don't want to interrupt the kid because they're doing so well. So we might go over a couple of minutes and that's okay because I have the ability to time myself that way. And parents really appreciate that because sometimes in private practices, it does feel like at the 30 minute mark, they are at the door because you have someone else that you need to see. So just given that extra time to really dive in, do extra research. I have a client who has a complex and rare diagnosis and just having that time to do the extra research. And my family has told me, wow, we've never had a practitioner actually take the time to read. Like I was reading ASHA articles and I was like sending to them and I was highlighting some notes. And they said, we've never actually had any of our practitioners do that for us and take the extra time to look into this. So I feel like I'm treating my clients in that way. Like I'm investing, I'm investing my clinical skills a lot more than I was before. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. I love that. I think it's a, I think it's a really thorough answer. And yeah, I think time, time for you as the clinician time, as in like helping a family reframe what this time is for, right. Mm -hmm. And reframe what we can do in a certain amount of time, as far as like, it's not just the clinician comes in with their bag of toys and treats the child. It's actually a family affair. It's Mm -hmm. we're utilizing this time that you're already 
already spending in the family to make it even more enriching, make this a language rich environment and help the family, the caregivers see that they can integrate everything that they're doing with their child into their daily life there and then participation to support communication in this case. Um, But if it was another kind of developmental therapy, it would be that as well. And that's what the parent coaching model routines based intervention and bagless therapy are all about. So I just love, I love that. And I think time is is absolutely such an interesting piece because mm-hmm. in all of those ways, it's it's so important. I'd love to hear more too, because you talked a bit about COVID. How much of an impact has the pandemic had on your outlook on therapeutic approaches? Well, a couple of things has changed. Clearly yeah. our clients can't see our, our faces. Yes. So what, what I've had to do, which works, right? It works because I'm already in the home. That's another thing. When I was at my practice, you know, the rooms are small. They have limits on how many people can be in there. And a lot of times parents would just take off and go and come back like at the 30 minute mark. So because we're already at home and I have my mask on, I'm asking, you know, for like my Arctic kids or like my speech delay kids, I'm having the caregivers actually model, right? So they have to be an active participant because, oh, Miss Jo can't take her mask off. So parents are actually doing and caregivers are actually doing a lot of the modeling, which works out because we're already at home anyways. And because of the way that the session is structured, it is a parent coaching model. So parents are having to be there anyways. So the modeling, I feel like that's helped a lot, you know, in comparison to what was happening in the clinic to what's happening now, the parents are doing the coaching. I'm not the coaching. I'm doing the coaching. The parents are doing the the modeling, which has been super super really helpful. I think also because, you know, taking in a toys, you're kind of like risking of transmitting things. That's been really helpful because I'm not bringing in toys. And because I've adopted that new mindset, I don't have to bring in toys. So I think that's really helped with COVID a lot. The part that I was a little teensy bit nervous about was, you know, I'm going into people's homes in the middle of a pandemic, but I've been able to keep safe. And I've told parents that I'm really strict about keeping my mask on and parents, they understand. I think they see the value of you coming into like, coming to them and bringing the therapy to them that's huge for so many parents especially parents who are busy or are experiencing time poverty so I think that's been really helpful even though it's a little bit worrisome but you know fingers crossed everything's been okay yeah Yeah. is that where you were getting at when you asked that question yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. I mean really just open-ended question about what your experience has been like and then we've talked a lot about different kinds of everyday items and things like Mm -hmm. that so I would love if you could share just a few of your own favorite therapy hacks when it comes to like being creative now that you are following more of this like parent coaching or bagless style of therapy. Yeah. So I've had a lot of sessions that in hindsight, it was like, whoa, that was really kooky, but then it worked in the moment. But so I have one of my kiddos who we played with a big candle and a little candle for like 30 minutes and he loved it. We scratched it, we sniffed it, he took it off of the stand that it was on, we rolled it around, we passed it back and forth, we talked about the big one and the little one, and he absolutely loved it. And I know that grandma was sitting there like, what the heck is happening? But he loved it. We got lots of really good language out of him. He was able to see up and down. And we're talking about a kid who has his own playroom, and he has millions of toys, and he has lots of aunts and uncles who just spoil him, but he wanted to play with a candle, and I got more language out of him playing 
playing with that candle because he likes to smell things. I got more language of, out of him working with that candle than like ever, 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 like doing all of our sessions with all the things that he has. I have another kiddo who just like picked up a mirror and that's what he wanted to play with. And so we played peekaboo. We talked about it who we see in the mirror. We uh, reflected other things off of the mirror and he got a kick out of that. He absolutely loved that. I have another kiddo who picked up the remote really because he wanted to watch TV and I was interrupting his TV time because I walked in and I was like, oh, well, that's gone. Because otherwise he would just be staring at the TV and completely ignoring me. And so we played with the remote and there were lots of buttons on there. Some of the buttons were a little bit harder to push than others. Some of them were really squishy buttons. We opened up the battery packing the back we took things out we rolled them and absolutely loved it once again and when parents realized that oh wow he likes to play with the remote because you know there's like those fancy phone remotes or like there's those fancy toy phones and parents will yeah. go out and buy them and they make really cool noises etc but it's like oh no this is like your time warner cable remote and your kid yeah. loves it and we're doing so much so much with it so i feel like i've had pockets of that happening where my parents are really shocked and actually really excited because they're like oh wow we don't need all of those things and then I look back at the session and I'm like, oh, okay, that went pretty, that went pretty well. Wasn't really expecting that's how it would have gone, but worked pretty well. Or sometimes you'll, you'll think you'll have a plan in your head when you go into the session of, oh, this is what we're going to work on, but they happen to be interested in something else. Then I'll just dive into that. And working when I used to work at a private practice, mm. I never would have felt comfortable following a child's lead. And I know that sounds mm. terrible coming from a clinician, but I felt more comfortable knowing that it was an adult led activity because I knew what targets we can bring up and I knew what to anticipate and accept what happened and you know the vocabulary targets we could use and everything like that versus where now I am and it's still a process right now I am in the process of accepting child-led therapy and child-led play where sometimes I'm like oh I'm not really sure where this is going or like he's really interested in this or she's really interested in that not really sure where it's going just but just being confident enough and knowing that whatever happens, we'll still be able to target skills. It doesn't have to be super structured, but we'll still be able to have fun and target skills, which I think having fun is like the number one priority too. Yeah. And one thing to plug into that I've stepped away from, and I didn't notice that I was doing is writing goals about unpreferred activities. Mm. And I think that we all kind of go through moments as clinicians where we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I used to write those goals. I used to write eye contact goals. Cool. Yeah. Terrible, terrible stuff. But now, like, I refuse to even see those goals because if it's unpreferred, why are we doing this? And also, why are we placing the expectation on children that they should tolerate unpreferred activities? And that's something that I've stepped back away from, which also supports the whole child-led approach to therapy, is that let's let them do what they want to and what they're interested in. Because if they're enjoying it, then everybody's happy and chances are that you'll actually be able to target more skills that way. Right. And I Actually, that's like basically the definition of play, right? Exactly. And like we exactly. know that's all of the like early childhood education research of all early learning research, all early intervention research that points to the fact that young children are going to utilize play, right? I mean, and you have all these quotes, right? 
from Maria Montessori and Fred Rogers and all the people saying like play is the work of the child, right? Literally, that's how they learn is through play. And when we let them explore and we follow their interests, then we can provide the language around those things that they're doing, how they're moving, what it feels like, how it looks, what they might do next and target all of those beautiful pieces of language and speech as well, right? How does it oh, what is that word, right? Like you mentioned the T's earlier, right? Like, oh, let's let's see how many words that start with a T we exactly. can fit into this activity, right? And yeah. and that does, like it requires some reframes from the clinician. Mm-hmm. And also we know that that is what is most, that is the most efficient and what's what's the adjective version of eff- effective, effectacious? Is that the effective? Oh, <laughs> I can't do it. Regardless, who speaks like four languages? No clue. No, I know. Efficacious. I feel yeah. like that would be a word. What are two <laughs> speech pathologists who together could speak at least six or seven languages? Right. Just can't figure it out. Like, you know, it's effective. Listen, when when the words aren't coming, sometimes I honestly give up. I'm like, oh, having a little bit of um, word retrieval issues, not really sure which language I'm trying to pull up or if this is even a real word. So let's just go ahead and talk about something else. Or a medley of several different languages. In exactly, one word, exactly. Oh my gosh, funny. Oh gosh. All right. Well, let's hear about a few of your favorite resources to share with families or with other professionals who are hoping to approach early intervention in this way. Yes. I mean, besides learn with less. Oh, thank you. Yes. So <laughs> learn with less is definitely number one. I, I feel like we met each other in a very odd way because I was actually just using the hashtag learn with less because I was like, oh, this is like what I'm doing. And I was like, wait, this is a whole program. The thing. <laughs> and I was like, this is a whole thing. And then I was like, oh, let me follow her. And then we got connected by like some weird happenstance or something. I think I might've tagged you in something. So definitely the learn with less curriculum, I feel like would be so beneficial for so many people. I myself have fallen into the category of more toyless play. So I also have lots of different resources and I usually direct a lot of my families to a lot of really cool Instagrammers and a lot of blogs just to kind of like get out information. I don't have anything in particular, but if I see something, I'll just kind of like shoot it out to parents. I'll I'll ask them like if they, they read this or like, I just read this really cool article or I just saw this really cool reel, which like reels are so quick and easy and parents can read them or watch them. So I'll just send it to them. I don't have any like particular go-to resource, but yours is definitely your Instagram page and your website is definitely one. And I'm definitely moving away from toy therapy or like toy directed therapy. So I also refer them to some of my blogs. Yeah. Well, we would love obviously to share those things in the show notes, but in general, where can people find what you're doing, you know, where you are on the internet and all the amazing content that you're creating to it? Yes. So I, uh, my information is not very consistent, but but I started out as the speech pathologist on Instagram and which is the best amazing handle the name is so good that I refuse to change it to my company name I'm like nope I like this one and when people look up speech pathologist it just comes right up so I am the speech pathologist on Instagram which 
I don't even know how I got that name and nobody had it before me. It just, boop, it happens. But on my website, I am Koze Speech Therapy. So K-O-Z-E speechtherapy.com. And my Facebook is the same as Koze Speech Therapy. And then all of my contact information is on my website. Amazing. Amazing. If I can leave your listeners with one thing, I don't remember who exactly had that statistic, but I did a training that was called Keeping Babies and Infants in Mind. And it's a seven part training and it's actually offered for free. I think as long as you're in early childhood, you can just sign up on the Montclair University website. And the statistic was that if you see a child for two 30 minute sessions or one one hour session, you're seeing them once, you're going to that house once. It was mostly geared towards early intervention. So you're seeing them for one hour in the week, but children typically spend upwards of 84 hours with caregivers and with parents in the home or in their natural setting. So I thought for me, that was a big mind frame shift for me, because when you really look at these numbers, the families and the caregivers are spending the most amount of time with the child. So why wouldn't you direct your therapy and why wouldn't you shape your therapy to support them, especially since we know that parents and caregivers are their children's first teachers? Why wouldn't you shape your therapy to support them so that it really feels like they're getting 85 hours of therapy, you know, like once you've given all the resources. So for me, that was really big. And then I understood, okay, you know, pulling out Mr. Potato Head or like pop the pig and like doing that and then taking my stuff and leaving, that's not very helpful. So I think that one to 84 hours for me just kind of blew my mind because I never thought of it in like a numerical way. Sometimes you need numbers to be able to to get it. So yeah. I wanted to leave everyone with that statistic. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, because again, it's like that, that half an hour or one hour of, of an entire week. Think about how many hours there are in a single week that, exactly. that the caregiver spends with that child. Mm-hmm. And so if we can, it's the adage of teaching a person to fish, right. Or <laughs> giving them a fish versus teaching a fish. Teaching yes. Them how to fish. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching a fish, teaching how to fish. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> wow, we're on fire here today. It's <laughs> Joanne, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. It was so great having you. Of course. Thank you so much, Ayelet. Are you an educator or therapist looking for new ways to serve families, to use your knowledge to support new parents and caregivers in your community? I would love for you to check out the Learn With Less Facilitator Training and Certification Program. When you submit your application, we will make sure you're a good fit. And if you are, I will be gifting you my exclusive private training all about how to create lasting impact leading caregiver and me classes with a high quality evidence-based plug and play program that will have families coming back again and again. All you need to do to get an invitation is to fill out the quick application form at learnwithless.com slash certification. I would love to know more about you. Does this work call to you? Do you already serve families and your community in a similar way? Send me a direct message on Instagram. I'm at learnwithless and I would love to hear from you. Thanks for being here. See you later. What will you do the rest of your day? Goodbye to the babies. Goodbye to the toddlers. Goodbye, bigger kids. Goodbye, all the siblings. Goodbye to the grown-ups. Goodbye to Joanne. Goodbye, Ayalit. Goodbye to this music. We laughed and we played. We're getting very clever. This is what counts. Being here together.
Thank you so much, everyone. The Learn With Less podcast brings you information, tips, and resources about all things early parenthood and early childhood. Don't forget to download our free infant and toddler development blueprint by heading to learnwithless.com blueprint today. If you haven't yet done so, please do leave a review of the Learn With Less podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. That helps other people find the good work we're doing. After you've done that, go ahead and share Learn With Less with a friend or colleague. See you next time. Thank you.